The surgical sole is an area deep in the abdomen that is just a few inches wide. But because of its location, injuries to this area are often deadly to the patient and are extremely challenging for the surgeon to manage. Inspired by its namesake, the Surgical Soul Podcast dives deeply into the lives of surgeons, exploring their accomplishments and joy, as well as their struggles and pain. I am Red Hoffman, an acute care surgeon in Asheville, North Carolina, and I invite you to join me to discover the secret lives of surgeons, both inside and outside of the operating room. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on my new podcast, The Surgical Soul with Red MD. Some of you may know me from my previous podcast, The Surgical Palliative Care Podcast, where I interviewed leaders in the field of palliative care. All of these episodes are still available on multiple podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. I published my last podcast in October 2021 and have been relatively quiet since. It was during this quiet time that the idea for this new podcast, The Surgical Soul, was born. The last three years were very challenging for me, and I know I'm not alone. I've learned some extremely painful lessons about traumatic injury, about caregiving, about suffering, about death, about grief, about chronic illness, and about disability. I also learned some amazing lessons about joy, about pleasure, about music, about comedy, about creativity, and about love. I know I'm not the only surgeon who has been forced to, or invited to, learn all these lessons. And I began thinking about how all of these experiences affect our work as surgeons, and how our experiences as surgeons affect us as human beings. And so I decided to start this podcast to explore our lives, our struggles and pain, as well as our accomplishments and joy, both inside and outside of the operating room. My first guest is my dear friend, colleague, and office mate, Dr. Elaine Chan. Elaine is an acute care surgeon in Asheville, North Carolina. She also works as a hospice doctor and serves as the surgery clerkship director. As I say during our interview, Elaine has an uncanny ability to bloom where she is planted and to find pleasure and joy on an almost daily basis. I loved hearing about how she pivoted from academic surgery to locums to part-time surgery and part-time hospice work just by following her heart rather than chasing a predetermined goal. While her path might not be for everyone, it reminds me that it is okay to pivot and change course. Our friendship is invaluable to me, and we also talk about the importance of finding that safe space with another surgical colleague, one you can confide in when you are feeling uncertain or insecure, or when you are dealing with an unexpected patient outcome. Thanks so much for tuning in to this first episode of The Surgical Soul with me, Red MD. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hi, love. Thanks so much for being with me today on the first episode of the Surgical Soul podcast. I can't think of a better guest to have than you. Thank you. It's an honor. 
So Elaine, I know so many great things about you, but I was wondering if you could just do a brief introduction for our audience. Absolutely. So I'm a somewhat typical first-generation Asian-American female, I think, whatever that means. I was born in Chinatown, New York City. And at the age of nine, I was uprooted from Chinatown to a pretty uh, Caucasian-dominated town called Lodi, New Jersey. Um, I went from concrete jungle to suburban so suburbanville. So that was quite the cultural shock. I was literally the only Asian American um, in that town or maybe even Bergen County itself. So, and then I actually returned to New York for uh, undergrad and went um, all the way through the graduate from surgical residency from New York city. So I spent probably in total 20 years in New York city. And I, I very, very much identified myself as a New Yorker. Um, and I still do to this day. So my parents were the typical hardworking Asian American parents. Um, they owned a restaurant and made their living that way. So at a very tender young age of like seven, as soon as I could pick up a phone, you know, I was working. So <laughs> at a desk at the, uh, in the back of the restaurant doing my homework and then trying to, you know, field orders basically. So, um, uh, some will say that's child slavery, but that's a diff- different topic. <laughs> And so how did you go from taking orders at a Chinese restaurant to ending up being a surgeon? Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's a great question. Uh, Looking back, I remember when I, I was kind of forced to make a decision about what career path I had to uh, choose. I mean, I think any Asian American um, definitely have, you know, like when you go to sleep, the parents are like, become a doctor become a doctor, you know, like they, they just love, um, they, for some reasons, I guess it's a status thing and they know their kid's going to have financial security if they become a doctor. You know, I remember, uh, it was the end of my freshman year at NYU and I really didn't know what I was like. I didn't really love any courses I had taken at that point And I didn't know what I was going to do. And, uh, like being a doctor wasn't even on my radar, to be honest with you. Well, other than the subtle nuances of like uh, being told by my parents or grandparents that I should become one. But at the end of my freshman year, I had to make a decision and I floated the idea of like, oh, maybe I'll go into like the arts, you know, and see like how my dad would react to that. Well, it didn't go well. Um, I like could literally see him have like angina and I was like, okay, never mind. Now I know. <laughs> uh, medical school it is. And that's really my not so romantic tale of Uh, entering into medicine, basically. So one of the things I love about your story that in some ways I think ends up being somewhat similar to mine is where you kind of ended up in your career, which I think is not the typical surgical path at all. So can you kind of tell a little bit about what happened after you finished surgical residency? I had a mentor, uh, Raymond Wedderburn, who to this day, I have to credit him as a reason for um, me becoming a trauma surgeon. He was just this wonderful mentor uh, throughout my residency. And it was like basically process elimination. I didn't really like anything else. And I thought trauma surgery and acute care surgery really, really fit my personality, my adrenaline junkie seeking self. And then how'd you end up going, I think, from being an academic surgeon at, you were at Temple, right, to where you are now? I was looking for a job. Temple had an opening and um, I knew that I uh, Temple really attracted me because I knew that it was a very high penetrating trauma center and I wanted to go somewhere that I can 
you know, as a junior attending, really have great mentors and have great operative experience. And I love teaching. Uh, I've always loved teaching. And so it was kind of the perfect blend for me. I kind of realized that this would be the my perfect first job. You know, certainly I didn't really know how long I was going to be there, but I was like, you know, this is really the best job I can ask for coming out of fellowship, essentially. But you didn't stay there for very long, it sounds like. No, no, I didn't. Um, so... After two years at, at Temple, which was a great experience, I loved everyone there. I got per- burnt out pretty quickly, and that's not because of Temple. I mean, I think any academic surgery is a very stressful job. I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that. So I had an opportunity, basically, knock at the door around year. At, so I was finishing up my second year at Temple. My um, husband, Bobby, who is a wildlife artist, um, he had been to Africa many times, and um, he floated the idea of volunteering with Wildlife Act, which is this organization that uh, really tries to uh, help with the animal conservation uh, efforts in Africa. So I thought to myself, that sounds amazing. Uh, but I was also thinking to myself, well, I'm just finishing up like my second year. Like, I, I can I really leave this you know, jobs so early, like, wouldn't it be academic, you know, career suicide to do so? And I think a lot of my partners thought I was crazy to even entertain the idea of like leaving my first job so early on, and then to really take a leap of faith and say, well, let's see what it is on the other side, you know, and after my, yeah, so at the end of my second year, I, I said, you know what, screw it, let's do it, you know, and we decided to take this uh, big adventure and, we ended up being actually a 10-month journey of uh, really just traveling all across Europe, Africa, Sri Lanka. So we we just really pursued that bucket list, you know, dream of ours to travel the world uh, with each other, no less, you know. So that was something I never in my wildest dream would have imagined would have happened. When you say you were burnt out, what did that look like for you? Yeah, so I think, um, so at least at Temple, it was a traditional model uh, in, terms, in terms of like shifts, you know, about like six calls, six 24-hour calls a month. And, but it always felt like, you know, there was a lot of responsibilities between teaching, clinical, you know, we had clinics, like um, I had two clinics a week and it was just a nonstop job. Even when you were off, you were never truly off. You know, there was always something to do, whether it's a presentation to prepare or um, helping the medical students or helping the residents. You always felt like even though you were off, it, it never left your mind that you still have the next thing to do, essentially. And I think that's not unusual with academic surgery jobs because that's, you know, in essence, the way it's rigged. And I think that, you know, it's funny because I, I was always asked that question, you know, in residency interviews, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to be an academic surgeon? I'm like, I have no clue. I don't know. What, what's an academic surgeon? It's like, I, I feel like that's such a loaded question when you're asking like a, someone who's applying to residency, like, I have no idea. I, I, what, can you tell me what an academic surgeon is first? And I'll tell you if I want that. <laughs> you know, like you don't really know until you actually are in it. And the research demands, the, I mean, there's just, it's just such a um, harder job than it is uh, than going into private practice or there's, there's definitely not that responsibility or um, constant pressure basically to perform. And burnt out for me, you know, I, I know we heavily use that word and I think for everybody it means something different. 
for me, the wake up call, I actually got the shingles, like the shingles of my face and that actually spread to my eye. And that was quite the rude awakening, you know, slash wake up call for me. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, like, what is this? And I mean, I think that just goes to show you the level of stress that I was enduring on a day-to-day basis. And it, it adds up, right. Cumulatively speaking. Um, and I finally just said, Oh my, I can't actually, or not that I can't, I don't want to do this anymore yes. you know, in terms of dealing with the level of stress and responsibilities associated with academic surgery. nothing against Temple at all. I loved Temple. You know, if I felt like I could endure another three years, I probably would have, but I, that after getting shingles, that was really like my uh, turning point. You know, I was like, huh, um, there's got to be a different way. You know, it's kind of how I saw it. And so after 10 months, you were out of the OR that whole time. Is that correct? When you were traveling? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I didn't do anything clinical for those 10 months straight um, from yeah July to May, basically. So that's kind of interesting since we both had that experience relatively early in our career, because I think I was like three years in. Um, when I had to take six months off after my life imploded, I like to say. I'm curious like what your experience was getting back into the OR still as such a young surgeon. Yeah, I think it was pretty nerve-wracking at times. You know, surgery is very much a sport, right? If you don't practice, you get rusty and you feel rusty. And I think I certainly had anxiety. I basically, after my 10-month journey, um, made a promise to myself to not endure the same amount of stress that I had put myself through in the first two years. But then after the um, traveling and going back, I, I couldn't see myself being a slave to a hospital again. Like I just didn't, I wanted something more, you know, I wanted something more flexibility, more freedom, and I wanted to be able to dictate my own schedule. And so that's really where locums suddenly entered my you know universe. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And, you know, I'm very much a, what was the expression you used, Red? That I bloom wherever I'm I'm planted. My expression for Elaine is that she blooms where she's planted um, in a way that I've actually heard that expression many times, but I never um, met someone who embodies it more than you do. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's not for everybody because I think some sur- I think most surgeons want a structure. You know, they want to know a, they want to have a schedule. They don't want to walk into you know chaos and they don't want unpredictable un- unpredictability in their day to day. But for me, I don't know. I just found it really exciting to travel to a new place. And usually these places are not coveted places, right? <laughs> I mean, usually these are in the middle of nowhere. And I just love small cities, going to the middle of nowhere. Not that the traveling was like that fun to get to these places, but, you know, they have a need. And I thought I'm going to provide good service to them. And um, so I, my first gig was in like Overland Park, Kansas, you know, and it was a level two trauma center. And I didn't really know what to expect, you know, but I, you know, I've adapted really well. So, you know, I, I, I kind of like just catch on or learn quickly about what I need to know uh, coming to a new place. But it's always kind of exciting, yet probably unnerving as well. Every time you enter to a new place, because you really don't know where anything is. You don't know who anyone is. You don't even know what help you're getting. And I, I think most people would would run away from that. Um, and I just gravitated towards that. I've like really loved that challenge of being able to 
um, surpass my surroundings, if that makes sense, or come above, you know, and just really do the best I can in these new, uh, unfamiliar environments, essentially. And so that's actually how Elaine and I eventually ended up meeting. I can't remember when we met, maybe almost three years ago now. Um, we met in the trauma bay at Mission Hospital where I was working as a trauma surgeon and Elaine came to do locums. That's right. So between 2016 and 2019, I only did locums. So I was really kind of all over the map, essentially. Um, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, just Missouri. I mean, you, you name it, I was there. Washington. So I was transcontinental. I was really literally everywhere. I tried to pick places that I thought were beautiful and unexplored, and I could do some hiking there and just really be able to kind of still exercise the, my adventurousness in these, um, jobs. And, um, when a job opened up in Asheville, I was just floored because I thought Asheville, wait a minute, I've always wanted to go there and it's a very coveted city to travel to. So I just couldn't believe it. So I jumped on the opportunity as soon as it presented itself. And I said, I must have this locums gig. And sure enough, uh, in preparation for it, I, you know, just kind of looked up who part of the department and who were the trauma surgeons there. And of course, I came across your uh, portfolio. And I was just reading it off. And I'm like, Oh, my God, I'm going to be best friends with this person. Like, I just knew, you know, I was like, uh, naturopathic medicine and yoga teacher. And you know, she lived in Portland and, and trained there. And I was like, Oh, we're going to be best friends. I just, I just, you know, it's so interesting how you just know, and it's just how would you even know just from reading off, you know, some CV uh, items and be like, Oh, I just know. I just know that we were going to be best of friends. I have to say it was so amazing. I still remember meeting you because you came up to me in the trauma bay and you said, Red Hoffman, I read all about you. I want to give you a hug. And I just thought... <laughs> You know, for, for female trauma surgeons to like kind of meet and just have such a open-hearted, loving connection from the get-go, it's, it's sometimes a little rare. Though I think our partners are all very loving and open-hearted. I think sometimes um, surgeons in general tend to like kind of not always lead with their heart. Certainly sometimes there's there can be a little friction between female trauma surgeons. So it was just like, something I still remember because I was like, God, that's just so random and cool. Oh yeah. Like, you know, I've never met you before and here I am just bombarding you with all this love. And you know, you're probably like, who is this person? Cause you, I don't think you even knew who I was really. I, you know, I was like, I, I don't think I even introduced myself. I thought I was just like PT. <laughs> but I, 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 I totally hear you Right, right. The usual. Yeah. Did you graduate yet? I'm like, right. I know Asian don't <laughs> That's only because it. Elaine looks um, like she's about twenty-five. And I'm only saying that because I'm very jealous. <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish I still got carded. Um, but but it was just funny because I, you know, you have this energy about you and I certainly think I have energy about me. And it was just like this perfect fusion of energy, like as soon as we met each other, you know, it was just like, you know, this is sometimes you meet people and you're like, I must have met known you in my prior lifetime because yeah. you just instantly connect on a level that's unusual for strangers just meeting. Like it's like that perfect strangers kind of old soul. Like that was a vibe I got, you know, this the for the moment that I um, met you. And I, I mean, obviously reading is one thing, but like, you know, meeting somebody in person and, and having that energy really coincide with yours. And it was just like kind of, you know, 
instance like kindred, you know. And so one thing that I noticed about you, like, so Elaine ended up becoming a locums, like a pretty regular locums at our hospital for quite a while. And even as a locums just became such a part of our department. And that's where that whole idea of blooming where you're planted and really just digging into wherever the space is and not just making the best of it, but like really making it better than what it was without you, which I think is really such a rare gift, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think in the locums world, there's some some people believe that, you know, locums providers are not truly invested, you know, in the place or in the program because they're temporary or they're, you know, it's going to be a um, time limited position, basically. And so I'm sure some providers think, well, why why would I go above and beyond, you know, if I'm not really going to be rooted in this place and, you know, I'm just trying to get my job done so that I can um, be done eventually kind of thing. And I never had that mindset going into my locums gigs. I always felt that I really gave it my all um, and never felt like, oh, I'm just an outsider coming in. I really try to put myself in the shoes of I'm going to, I'm going to act like I work here as of like permanent staff, because I think your outlook and your mindset's different when you, when you have that in mind, I think I do a better job when I have that mindset, as opposed to just thinking, this is just a two week gig, I just got to do the grind for two weeks and then get out of here. Like I never had that mentality um, ever. And certainly not at um, Asheville. I, you know, I went in there thinking like, I knew it was going to be a a longer term gig than usual. So I knew that going in that I potentially had a chance to really kind of root myself here, you know, if possible, you know, I was still kind of exploring, didn't really know what to expect. And I really fell in love with our department. I just think, you know, we have the most amazing colleagues and partners and um, it really takes a village, right? So I I really, really love the people I work with. And I still do, obviously. But I know that when you were offered a job, it was, you had to think about it a lot before you were ready to say, I am willing to be an employed physician again and kind of give up a little bit of that freedom. Although I think working part-time allows you to maintain that freedom. So can you talk a little bit about that and then what it's like to be, I I hate using the word part-time surgeon because I even think a part-time surgeon, like really, when you look at the hours we work, we really end up working full, but we have like a full-time job based on all the other things that we do. But can you just talk a little bit about that transition back to being an employed surgeon? Yeah, um, I definitely had my reservations because, you know, I sort of had made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to go back to any full-time position after getting burnt out so quickly. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. Now, of course, we're comparing apples and oranges because where we work isn't a level one trauma center, academic, big academic center. So it is different in that respect. But when they were done with locums and they basically offered me a position, I said I would only take it if it's half time. And so I really wanted to stay true to my promise to myself that I wasn't going to go back down this deep, dark circle uh, hole, I should say, of, you know, this rabbit hole of, of working myself to death. So I was pretty shocked that they were so open to, to that. And because it's very rare in our line of work to find a half-time position, you know, in general. I mean, I think the culture is different now. There's definitely the pendulum is swinging away from non-traditional models, but but on the whole, it's pretty hard to find a job um, that allows you to work half-time. But like you said, half-time doesn't mean that you're still, you know, you can fill fill it in with other stuff, but at least you're not 
mandated mandated to work in X amount of, you know, hours or days, basically, month to month. And so, you know, I had some reservations about, do I really want to be permanent staff at a hospital again? And after talking about it with my husband for a long time, and we really loved Asheville, and I really loved our group. So I felt, you know, COVID was kind of breaking out at that point, too. So that was another consideration that I had to factor in that, you know, do I really want to remain nomadic, you know, as a locums um, surgeon, or do I want to plant some roots, you know, permanent roots here at least, or quasi-permanent roots here to flourish here essentially. And so after a a long soul searching, um, I, I decided that I'm going to take a leap of faith and see where this goes basically. But what's interesting is I think I've seen you over the last two or three years that even though you've had that promise to yourself to not get burnt out, I've also seen you struggle with even just working part-time, like struggling against that tendency to like keep filling up your schedule. I mean, we've had that conversation so many times. Should you take that locums gig? Should you take this hospice gig? Should you take this medical student gig? Like, and really trying to fight against that urge that I think we all have to like overfill our schedules and be productive 120% of the time. Yeah, it's, I think it's really human nature to fill the schedule up and to feel our self-worth is based on productivity. You know, it's very much a societal value that we grow up that, you know, we are what we do. So the more we do, the more valued we are or the more value we put in ourselves, you know, by how much we do. And so, I mean, I think by nature, I'm already a pretty ambitious driven person, but then add on top of that, you know, I had tiger Asian parents to feed that, you know, that drive and ambition. And then I think human nature, like I said, is like you, even with a halftime schedule, I definitely still felt this tendency that it wasn't enough, that I still have to do this or do that. And I just felt like I just had to, it's a constant struggle basically to feel that the schedule is too empty essentially. And, um, you know, you and I talk about this all the time that it's almost like a training, uh, an exercise that you have to really force yourself to just block off an X amount of days per month where I'm not doing anything. And, uh, you know, in doing nothing, I'm doing everything as well. Right. You know, you talk about self-care and you talk about such a loaded term nowadays, right? Wellness, self-care, like everyone is talking about wellness and self-care and it means it's something different for everybody what that means, you know? So I've really been trying to, and I'm not saying I'm great at it at all. I think it's a constant struggle to, quote unquote, you know, be balanced in terms of, you know, activities and just taking time to yourself and just really taking times to to not be distracted and just to just to chill, basically. And I think it's very hard for us. Like I think inherently most surgeons have an addiction to work. I mean, you had to have some degree of addiction to work to become a surgeon even. Think about the rigorous training that we had to endure. You know, you can't exactly be, you know, you know, a lazy person and then graduate and and become a good surgeon if you don't have a good work ethic essentially. Certainly there are some that get by, but uh, I think by and large we 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 definitely have, you know, um a certain level of some more than others of addiction to work. And I think I recognized that pretty early on, you know, after after Temple, I was like, okay, I know I have a tendency 
Um, we all do, but I'm going to work on this. You know, it's a conscious decision, or I would say once it's in your realm, if you see it, you know it, you know, and I was able to see it early on that like, this is going to be my constant battle, you know, and I'm, I just, it's just a work in progress. Like I just have to constantly work at it and we're never, you know, I don't think I'll ever be perfect at it. And it's not even about that. It's just really more about the journey to get there. Yeah. It's so interesting for me. I feel like with long COVID, it's just, I have this external force forcing me to like slow down. And even with that, I still want it over schedule, but I think I've been bitten in the ass so many times from over scheduling that now I'm just, I, I'm like, okay, I give up. But it, it's like interesting that all my self care, my journey to becoming part time and not overfilling my schedule was really all from external forces. When I look back, my, my life was so unbalanced before all of this happened. And I wasn't taking great care of myself or my relationship, but I couldn't find the, I think the courage to like that you had to just step back and to say, it's not about the money and it's not about what people think of me and my worth as a person This doesn't have to be tied to what I do. And of course, now I'm learning all that, whether I want to or not. And I am grateful for those lessons. But I think one of the reasons I have so much respect for you is because you were able to do that from an internal locus of control. And I just think that takes a lot of courage, you know? Yeah, I think um, a couple of points there. So um, I go back to, you know, I talk about my drive and my ambition. So my my mom had an affair um, twice, actually, and she she just left the family one day. And I was only 17 at the time. And I just remember my, my whole world completely just shattering because I was thinking, how did my mom, a mom, no less, leave her family? And I think that abandonment fueled my drive and passion to you know, overachieve to prove a point that I am good enough, that I, I, uh, I'll show you, you know, for leaving us. And so unfortunately, sure, you know, you can argue that tragedy turned into triumph because I am a trauma surgeon, but at the same time, the intention behind there was to prove somebody, right. It was to prove to my mom that I am good enough. Like the intention behind it was led to toxic, you know, habits or toxic paths, you know? And so I really had to work with intensive therapy to kind of get rid of that, you know, or not get rid of it completely, but just address it. Because for so long, I I didn't, you know, seek therapy. I never thought, what is therapy? What is that? I don't even know, do I have uh, problems if I go to one? Or, or, do, or do I need to go to one because I have problems? And so for the longest time, I never even, it wasn't even on my radar. And then um, I think once I recognized that much of my you know aspirations, especially from a career standpoint, really stemmed from this, you know, life-changing event, it was much easier to put a damper on it and say, hold on, like put the brakes on this ambitious, uh, um, you know, train and, and just rein them in and say, okay, why am I doing this? Like, cause I think oftentimes, you know, Eagle will rear its ugly head and, you know, try to tease us and say, Hey, don't you want this? Don't you want that? And it's so easy to just say, Oh yeah, I do. But then when you ask yourself, like, why do I want this? And then it becomes a different story. Cause like, I think when you question your intention behind any action, you really got to ask yourself, what is the root cause of why I want to do this basically? You know, what's the root reason I should say. And 
I think I've become much more conscious of it, but that's only after years of reflection and, and introspection and going through therapy and saying, okay, you know what, before I act, I ask, right? It's like, that's how I kind of want to just keep that as my motto, basically, from, from staying out of trouble. Yes. So you brought up therapy. I thought we could talk a little bit about the therapy. So um, <laughs> we have, Elaine and I have been passing around this therapist that was uh, initially my boyfriend who died, and then I inherited him, and then I gave him to Elaine. And um, he's just been so instrumental, I think, in both of our lives and introduced us to a type of therapy called internal family systems. So I'll just share a little bit about that because I think it's so powerful. Internal Family Systems believes that we are made up, we are all made up of parts and all of the parts have positive intent and they are all there to serve a purpose and that they all just need to be listened to. And I think both of us have found this to be like really instrumental in our, in our journeys towards just like kind of getting emotionally healthier. And what has also been great about doing the same therapy as someone who's a dear friend of mine who I work with is that we can really use, we really are able to use that language. Like even when we're sitting in our office and are struggling with something that's happening at work, we're able to say like, what part is being triggered right now? And really, what does that part need? Really gives a, a language and a construct to help us solve some problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't thank you enough for really introducing your therapist to me. And because at that point in time, I never even heard of internal family systems. And the journey has been quite wild. I mean, you know, learning about it, and then investigating my parts and really giving the love and attention that have not been given. And, you know, the benefits of the IFS model have been, you can't even put a, a value on it, how, how, beneficial it's been for me at least and you know for you as well and i think most people don't know what ifs is but it makes sense you know like you said it's it's these parts that are generated really tools of survival right at the time and i think that it's so nice to be able to share that with you because you do understand and you have been through it it's very hard to explain it to somebody else who's never gone through the therapy you know but for me it's been so instrumental just in terms of finally getting to the root of these parts and addressing these parts and seeing what that does for, you know, mental health, for, you know, emotional health, basically. So what are some other things that you do to kind of keep yourself, I would use the word balanced, <laughs> emotionally, as well as one can be? <laughs> it's all, it's everything. So um, I don't know, none of the labels really sound great. But what are the other things you do to care for yourself? So I think um, one thing I I definitely did not value as much or did not realize how important it was, was being active. I think that, you know, in med school and residency, you're just trying to, especially residency, you're just trying to make sure you have time to do the laundry, shower, and, you know, and eat food, right? Yeah, sustain yourself, sustain yourself, um, um, nourish yourself. And, the, you know, you don't really prioritize getting exercise. And so, from I did like running and yoga. Those were my main things that I did. Um, but I would say in the last three years, I've really realized the importance of like strength training or, you know, being more consistent and more regular with, with movement for my mental health, especially like whenever I stop, you know, um, even for a couple of days, I'll start feeling yucky, like almost, you know, immediately the effects are pretty dramatic more so now than it was before. 
it's also like an empowerment thing too. It's not just about moving to get the blood flowing and to reap all the different benefits of exercise, but it's an empowering activity to do on a day-to-day basis to feel stronger, you know, and to feel that like your body is a well-oiled machine because our line of work is strenuous, strenuous enough as it is, stressful enough as it is, that really keeping your body in tip-top shape is like super, uber important. And I, I emphasize that to the residents all the time, that it's so important that you, for mental health reasons, that you guys do something, you know, something, even if it's just 10 minutes a day. And I think it's important for them to, re- you know, I think they get the picture because I didn't understand how important it was really until like now. I could think it's medicine to just step in the forest. You don't have to do anything crazy. Just walk through a forest. And there is medicinal benefits to that, you know, that we often don't recognize or uh, we don't value enough, essentially. So I think that definitely is in my self-care routine. So uh, being out with nature or uh, and maintaining activity with going outside would be the perfect blend of it. You know, that's that's my ideal uh, day. If I can exercise in nature, that's there's nothing better than that, basically. I love it. You use the word sanctuary. So I thought we could just talk briefly because we always talk together about having like this sacred space between us. And I think that for me, beyond your being my friend, and you have certainly with dear friends have that sacred space, we have that sacred space as colleagues too. And so I think one of the challenges in being a surgeon is that we have complications. You know, we often say that if you don't have complications, you're either lying or you're not operating enough. So complications are inevitable. And then, of course, how we deal with them determines what our careers look like moving forward. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed so much in our friendship is having that space to come share what I'm feeling, which, of course, I can do with other people. I can tell my boyfriend or my mom, but also have at the same time, really get out the anatomy books and talk about, well, what exactly happened? And then what are you going to do so this doesn't happen next time? But do that in a way that doesn't feel, it never feels judgmental. It just feels really safe. But it is potentially also scary, right? Because you're also my partner and you're taking care of these patients as well, because that's our model in acute care surgery and depending on me to take care of your patients. So it's just been really, for me, an interesting mix to be so vulnerable with someone that like I love personally and respect professionally. Yeah, I think what we have, this sacred space that we always talk about and refer to and what we share is is rare. I don't think that, you know, well, for me, it's kind of hard to say because I didn't really have a permanent position. You know, so I didn't, I was never able to really, you know, build that with anybody else, you know, never really had the opportunity to. And so I think for us, we, it's like two mirrored souls and uh, it wasn't hard for us to reach that level of vulnerability and be able to confide on each other uh, with about things that we normally wouldn't feel safe to. And, you know, when we talk about wellness, I think that having a support network is very instrumental to that wellness because if you don't have somebody you can call no matter what time it is and be able to confide in them, like, your biggest fears or, you know, your shame and your guilt about something that happened. It's really isolating. And I think that healthcare in general is dangerously becoming more and more lonely for a number of reasons, very isolating um, as a job. And we, our jobs are hard enough as it is not being able to talk about it with somebody to that level of degree of vulnerability 
makes it that much harder. You know, it's almost near impossible, I feel, that if you don't have that emotional support network. Because, you know, I can talk about it with my husband. I can talk about it with my other friends, but they don't, they're not in the, you know, they're not trauma surgeons, right? They're not going to really know the level of details or the understanding of like what it is to feel like to be one. And so being able to share that space with you has been really invaluable um, just in terms of being able to look at our complications and our mistakes and not just douse in shame and guilt and being able to talk about it is the first step of recognizing, okay, how am I going to be resilient in this, in after this disastrous case or, you know, this complication? It's, you can't do it alone. Um, and certainly, well, some people think they can, but they, they're not doing it well, you know, and, and sooner or later it haunts them. It's just a matter of time. And so I'm very grateful for the sacred space that we share for that reason. And, and I would just encourage everyone who's listening. I think one of the things I learned in residency for various reasons was you're not always going to get what you want or need in your local environment. And that's okay. As long as you get it from somewhere, like there's colleagues throughout the country and the world that can be of benefit to all of us. So yeah, while we're super lucky that we share a job and an office, um, and that's like such an amazing blessing. It It's just as easy to pick up the phone and call another surgeon colleague and really talk it out because sometimes that healing comes from really getting into those nitty gritty details. And it's, it's those details that as surgeons, I think end up haunting us in a way that as much as our partners and families love us, they're just, it's, it's a little hard to understand when you have that knife in your hand and that person's really depending on you to make them well or to save their lives. It's um, a blessing and I'm grateful for it, but it is also, it's a heavy calling sometimes I'll say. Sometimes, you know, if I had a really rough, you know, case or complication, like I have a lot of, I go inward, you know, and I just really journal a lot and think about it a lot and ruminate over it. And, you know, it's like you become obsessive about it for usually like the first week. And, you know, I talk about it with pretty much, you know, everyone. And just because that's, that's like how I cope with it. You know, that's, that's just me, but not everyone, you know, I'm not encouraging everyone to do the same thing I do, but find your support group and find your, your network basically to help you. Because I think the shame and guilt can be so debilitating at times. And um, you really want to be able to absolve yourself of of those emotions, if you can, those negative emotions, um, because they can paralyze you, you know, going forward, you know, just make you anxious and fear, like what, Am I going to get the same, am I going to make the same mistake or am I going to, uh, you know, have another disaster coming in? And so, you know, you always hear that expression, surgery isn't for the faint of heart. It's for a reason, you know, and I think it does take a level degree of uh, insight to see what I could have done better, but also not dwell on we're humans. Like we're not supposed to be, you know, perfect at all by any means, although we often, you know, feel like we need to be essentially, but like any other humans, we're allowed to make mistakes. I think it's just a matter of, you know, being able to not make the same ones over and over again. There's a difference. So I try to tell residents that all the time. Well, you know, as we're wrapping up, I, I figured that I'm going to end every, every episode with a segment that I'm going to call turnover time. And so for those not in surgery, turnover time, the turnover time is the time between cases. And 
you know, when you're in a well-functioning place, I don't know, sometimes, I mean, I think the best one I've seen has been 20 some odd minutes. Um, but oftentimes it stretches to way over an hour and <laughs> sometimes it stretches to way over two hours. And so it's this downtime and, you know, often as busy surgeons, we'll use it to see patients or, and consults and to catch up on our charting. I was reading that Dr. Newland, who is a famous um, surgeon author, used to write during that time. But I thought we could talk about, you know, what's one great thing that we did with our free time this week? I was working at Solace, which is an inpatient hospice, uh, thanks to you, Red. Um, I was able to um, have lunch with a PA that I worked with during one of my locum gigs in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This is at least, I want to say, four years ago at this point, four or five years ago. And she actually came down to Asheville. And so it's always nice to maintain these relationships, you know, even with locums gigs. Like I still actually surprisingly have a number of pa even patients that I've kept in touch with. And so it was nice to have her, you know, uh, sit down and have lunch with her and just really catch up with her. Um, and she really wants to go into functional medicine. So I invited um, our, our dear colleague, Cheryl, who's also into functional medicine. And she's a PA, um, you know, with 20 years of experience. So she was able to really talk to her. And so it was just a nice like reunion with her and also just getting to introduce each other to them. I mean, uh, them to each other. I love it. Well, I, I had a great time today just preparing for this podcast. I haven't podcasted in almost two years. And so it was just Aww. so much fun to like look into things that have changed and kind of get acquainted with some new software that I'm using and new equipment. And it's just something that I love. I love having the time and space and also just the energy when I have it to be creative. And I feel um, so grateful since my boyfriend's a musician. So he's going to make some music behind this and having something to like uh, have a project to work on together is um, just, I don't know, to me, it's very fulfilling kind of tapping into that creativity. A lot of surgeons have a creative side to them. You know, a lot of our colleagues have play music or are very crafty. You know, I think we have to be. And so I think it's important uh, when we talk about wellness is to tap into that creativity and, you know, use the other side of the brain. Well, thank you so much, my love, for joining me on this very first episode. Again, I just value who you are, and I'm so grateful for all the just pure joy um, that you've brought to my life. I love you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Surgical Soul Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free on your podcast player, tell a friend or colleague about this episode, and leave us a rating or review. The Surgical Soul podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dr. Red Hoffman, and features music by Chaz McConnell. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Until then, you can follow me on X and Instagram at redmdnd, and can find out more about me, including my writing and podcast appearances, on my website redhoffman.com. Thanks for listening as we continue to explore the secret lives of surgeons, both inside and outside the operating room.